Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And this is our second episode on Infinity. If you missed the first one, we do recommend you go back and listen to that one, but we are going to do a little recap here in case any of the information has fallen out of your head in the time being. Yeah, so let's talk about what Infinity is and what it is not, because uh, that's our nice little baseline there. It is not a real number, as right. we discussed before. Uh, you can't say that infinity is X number. Yeah, you can't write it on a check. You can use a symbol, I guess, but good luck cashing it. Uh, why have I never done that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it cannot be measured, of course. That is tied back to it not being a real number. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's growing. It's not doing anything. It's the ultimate Zen concept. It just is. Yes. And, of course, this has been an important topic to philosophers, uh, theologians, great thinkers throughout time, and that's one of the, the primary things we discussed in our last episode, because ultimately you get into discussions about the boundless, about the the limits of things. I mean, you're dealing with everything from the basic human experience. You know, how, how do I deal with the fact that my life only stretches on until so, so long? How do I deal with the fact that I, I can only perceive the universe with a certain bubble of perception. Mm-hmm. And then you start imagining a God and you're trying to, to figure out how that works. Is God, is God infinite? Is God physically infinite? Is God infinite in quality as opposed to quantity? It's to say the biggest idea is it is the, the, the infinite idea that, that humanity has tackled with, uh, over the ages. Yeah. And we talked about, uh, George Tvorsky writing for IR9 and he used the chessboard mm-hmm. to illustrate this idea saying that all the other uh, pieces have a number assigned to it, except for the king, whose number value is infinite. Yeah. The ch- chess is, is, inter- it is interesting because we mentioned before, you have a finite number of playable games for chess. And then you then you have this king that has a, an infinite importance within mm-hmm. the game. Uh, so you have two different types of infinity going on there. Yeah. You, lo- you lose the king. You lose the game. Right. It's a zero-sum game if you get rid of the king. And so, again, it ties back to this whole idea about eternity, even consciousness mm-hmm. uh, embedded in there with infinity. So, of course, it becomes like this great uh, meaty area for philosophers to really tussle with because it's got the afterlife in there. It's got the idea and the question of God. And, and by its very nature, it's an idea that we cannot fully contained. We cannot really completely grasp it. And yet we try to, and so Mm -hmm. did philosophers, as we discussed in the last episode, and they used math to try to prove this out or try to make their arguments even more persuasive. So today we're going to look at some examples in math and physics to see how well we can contain the idea of infinity and reach some sort of meaning which we already talked about is sort of impossible. Like meaning is infinite mm-hmm. in itself for various reasons. So just to recap, mathematics and infinity, you've all encountered numbers like uh, 12.12987653210101, just on, on, and on forever. You mm-hmm. just have to stop counting those numbers after a while. You have to stop recording them because mm-hmm. it becomes a pointless exercise. You just round up, right? Is that because humans are finite and we cannot continue to count infinitely? Yeah, that's that's uh, that's kind of the the, the big topic of uh, discussion here. And so you kind of have two schools of thought in mathematics, right? Mm-hmm. When when it comes to to 
struggling with the infinite. And it, it kind of comes down to some of the, the core arguments with mathematics itself. So is is mathematical infinity, is this a mere human creation, uh, an extrapolation into the world where there's no truth, or does mathematical infinity actually exist? Well, this comes down to the question of God, too, right? There are some observable things of how infinity works in mathematics. Um, and I say observable, but you can, it's just as we discussed in your example there, numbers can go on and on forever and we have finite lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't see God and therefore some people would say he or she or it does not exist. So you're grappling with some of the same concepts uh, in math and in infinity. So if you were to ask the constructivists or the institutionists, uh, they would say that classical mathematics, well, they deal with the sort of math that God would do. An infinite God, he can tackle with infinite numbers uh, and, and, and the idea of a mathematical infinity. But we are humans. We are finite. And we would rather focus with human mathematics, with finite numbers, because that ultimately is what relates to what we do. You know what I hear with that? What? My brain hurts. I'll just I'll just leave it to God. <laughs> he or she or it can deal with it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the idea that uh, infinity is is an interesting topic to tackle with as an abstraction, but does it really relate to the the work that I'm doing here, the work that mathematics needs to do in the world? And then there are the formalists. Now, formalism is a theory that holds that statements of mathematics and logic can be thought of as statements about the consequences of certain certain string manipulation rules. Um, Systematic formulation of the concept of mathematical formalism arose directly as a reaction to the paradox discovered within set theory, uh, which studies the concept of infinity. According to 20th century mathematician Abraham Robinson, infinite totalities do not exist either really or ideally. Any mention of infinite totalities is meaningless. Still, the business of mathematics must continue as if infinite totalities actually do exist. Right. We said uh, there are a couple of things. We're talking about a system here and this idea that you can, again, capture infinity. You can define it. Um, And then set theory, uh, which is something that a man named Georg Cantor came up with. And he's sort of the rabble rouser here. Mm -hmm. Um, According to Natalie Walkover, writing for Quantum Magazine, infinity was boxed and sold to the mathematical community in the late 19th century by the German mathematician Georg Cantor, who invented a branch of mathematics dealing with sets, collections of elements that ranged from empty, the equivalent of the number zero, to infinite. So Cantor stepped in there, really, and began to define infinity in a much more specific way. Yeah, and uh, it, he was he was a one of these individuals who was hated, <laughs> as well as loved, depending on who you're asking, because he was bringing up some really mind-blowing, disturbing takes on infinity. Yeah, uh, Natalie Walkover ha- says that other mathematicians initially despised <laughs> what they called this mess of infinities, and we'll talk more about this, because it's largely due to his idea of, of set theory. And one of his colleagues called them a grave disease Another called him a corrupter of youth. <laughs> uh, sadly, he was so vilified that he actually um, fell into a, a lifelong depression after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it tells you how radical some of these ideas were at the time and still are, really. Uh, because what it does is it just sets minds ablaze as to what what reality is and isn't, essentially. Yeah, I mean, one of the core concepts to come out of it uh, is that there are different kinds of infinity, and some are bigger than others. 
So let that sink in for a second. Yeah, let me, let's get into the math sweats here. Okay. I'm having the math sweats right now. Uh, set theory is essentially a useful language for describing mathematical objects. And what we're talking about is a nine item list of rules that Cantor came up with called Zermelo-Frenkel set theory with the axiom of choice or the ZFC established and widely adopted in math by the 1920s, okay? Um, one of the axioms says that two sets are equal if they contain the same elements. Another simply asserts that infinite sets exist. So you can have these infinite sets that are one-to-one equal to each other, and you have them going on forever and ever and ever and ever. And Cantor showed that for any infinite set, forming a new set made of all the subsets of the original sets represents a bigger infinity than that original set. So once you have one infinity, you can always make a bigger one by creating a subset of the original set, and then an even bigger one by making a set of all the subsets and so on and so forth. And there are an infinite amount of infinities in different sizes. And he also proved out that an infinite set of even numbers, like 2, 4, 6, could be put in that one-to-one correspondence with all counting numbers, like 1, 2, 3. So that came to this idea that there are as many evens as there are odds and evens in an infinite set. There's one problem with this, though. Okay. Real numbers. Ah, uh, yes. Like the one that you talked about earlier, you know, that, for example, point zero 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 one or pi, right? 3.14 or so on and so forth, blah, 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 blah. They go on forever and they are uncountable. And they don't correspond in a one-to-one fashion with counting numbers. But hold on, because we will get back to that. If, if that didn't sink in completely, we'll return to the uh, uncountability of real numbers in a minute, once we have a, uh, a structure in which to house them. All right, I am going to dab at the, the infinite number of sweat molecules dripping <laughs> off of me right now. Uh, no, it's not too bad, actually. Uh, and let's take a break. When we get back, we'll talk more about the infinite hotel. If you're out there and you're thinking, I, I don't know what they're talking about. They're, they're losing me. I'm sinking beneath the waters here. In the is the in the deep end of the mathematical, philosophical, theological, physical pool. Uh, I need help. Well, we need help too. For and, the love of infinity, give <laughs> me an example. Yes, we do have we do have an example. We have a flotation device, and it is a thought experiment. Because the thought experiments, as always, they can take some very difficult to grasp ideas and concepts and put them into uh, into a metaphorical form that we can latch on to and then and then actually explore the the concept a, a little more easily and sometimes a little a little deeper right and what could be more of a form and accessible than a building which yes. is essentially what we're talking about um, this is an infinite building an infinite hotel and this was created by German mathematician David Hilbert, who was obsessed with Cantor's work mm-hmm. and and came up with this little ditty to try to explain a hotel with an infinite number of rooms. All right. Oh, it's a, so it's a hotel, infinite number of rooms. How many how many rooms does it have, Julie? An infinite amount. Oh, but a countable infinite amount, which is going to turn out to be important. All right. So let's say uh, just to just to roll out the basic entry level uh, portion of the thought experiment. I show up to the Infinity Hotel, all right? Okay. And uh, and I need a room for the night. I know there's a convention in town, uh, the local set theory convention, maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I, know, I know that all the hotels are booked, but I really need a room. So the Infinity Hotel sounds like a good place to go. 
All right, so let me uh, adjust my jaunty little manager's bellhop cap here. Okay. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the guest in room. Wait, do you have vacancy? Always. We have an infinite amount of rooms. Okay, I see a lot of cars in the parking lot. Hold up. Okay. Just do you look at a magazine or okay. something while I figure this out. I'm going to ask the guest in room one to move to room two. And then the guest in room two to move to room three, and so on and so forth. Every guest moves to room N plus one. And since there are an infinite amount of rooms here, then there's room for every guest to move into a different room. So you're saying that even though there are already infinite guests at the Infinity Hotel mm-hmm. occupying the infinite rooms, mm-hmm. you can still make everyone move over one room and thus open up a single room for me to stay in this evening. You, a whole person, a whole number, a natural person, a natural number, huh. may enter into this hotel. In fact, and if 40 other people want to join you, they can. I mean, not in your room. Obviously, you don't want to sleep with 40 other people in right. your room. But 40 other people would like to get 40 rooms. Well, hey, guess what? They can. And all I have to do is have everybody gather their luggage and move to room N plus 40. So if you are in room 2... Now you move to room 42. Okay. And well, so that, on and so forth. That sounds reasonable. I'm going to pick up my bags. I'm going to move on in, and hopefully I'm going to be asleep in an hour or two. Oh, by the way, I see a bus coming around the corner. Uh, looks like some more guests are arriving. <laughs> oh, a bus containing a countedly infinite number of people arriving? No problem. All I have to do is ask each guest to move to room N to room number 2N. So room 1 moves to room 2, room 2 to four, room three to six, and four to eight. And this fills up all the infinite rooms and empties all the infinite odd rooms. So you're telling me that the Infinity Hotel, Uh which is currently filled up with infinite number of guests, has room to take care of the guests, the infinite number of guests arriving in an Infinity bus. That's right, because all it is is shifted everybody to the infinite even number rooms. To accommodate all the infinite amount of people coming off the infinite buses, I'm going to put them all in odd number rooms. And you remember Cantor and his infinite sets. This is an example of those one-to-one matches, not to mention underscoring the idea that Cantor had that there are an infinite, odd, and even amount of numbers. So, so, so far, the Infinity Hotel thought experiment is holding up. But of course, one of the, 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 uh, the fun things about thought experiments, uh, is that you can continue to experiment with them in an attempt to break them, to push them to the yeah. absolute limits. Break so, me. Come on. Okay, well, so far the Infinity Hotel has been able to deal with one new occupant. It's been able to deal with a, a bus full of infinite new occupants. But what does it do if coming around the corner are infinite buses and each bus has infinite guests? I mean, just an infinite line of infinitely filled buses. Yes. All right. Well, maybe I remember that Euclid said that there are an infinite number of prime numbers. Yep. I just remembered that. Okay. And so current occupants of rooms are assigned the prime number two. So, for instance, the current occupant of room number seven goes to two to the seventh power or room 128. Then the next group, they're all assigned to the prime number three. And they take their bus seat numbers to figure out their room numbers. So seat number seven goes to three to the seventh power or room 2187. 
And I, I want to throw in that this is important because if you just did them bus by bus, mm-hmm. you would never finish unloading, owning the first bus. Well, yeah, first you got to take, uh, you got to take care of your crew that's already in, in the hotel, right? That right. you give them that prime number mm-hmm. too. And then yes, you have to start referring to bus seat numbers to begin applying all the infinite number of prime numbers. So you can do this. Each, each new group gets a new prime number. So, you know, you go to the, you know, prime number five, then prime number seven, 11 and 13, and everybody just has to reference that number on their bus seat. So again, this is this really, it's, it's messy, but, uh, there's an elegant system to take place, uh, or to make sure that everybody gets their place. And that ensures that there are no overlapping room numbers for the infinite amount of people filing out of the infinite number of buses. Here's, here's the thing though. Here's the thing. Okay. Here's what I don't want to see coming out of those buses. <laughs> okay. I don't want to see any irrational numbers. I'm talking about you, Pie. I don't want to see you tumbling off the bus because this is not going to work. I don't need to see a negative seven or a representation, a human representation of a negative seven. First, you're, you're negative, right? You're mm-hmm. killing the vibe here in the hotel. <laughs> Second, I don't have negative numbers. I don't have basement number rooms, you know, extending infinitely down into my, my building here. And I don't have half fractional rooms available. Because that ultimately breaks the hotel. That brings everything crashing down because there's one infinity that's too big and that's the infinity contained in a continuous line, a continuous line of real numbers that goes on forever. If it showed up at the hotel, there wouldn't be room for everyone. You wouldn't be able to uh, to, to take that real number and count it. You wouldn't be able to put it on the guest list. Yeah, and that's yeah, exactly. That's the problem. I mean, because we can deal with this lowest level of infinity, the countable infinity of the natural numbers, but that uh, that real number, that continuum that Cantor had described before, that is uncountable. That doesn't behave in that one-to-one set way, and that's what I love about the Infinity Hotel is that it describes both these different. Uh, levels of infinity, these larger amounts of infinity, but how certain numbers don't work within it or are uncountable. Plus, you, you've seen uh, Bing John Malkovich, right? Yes. You know what happens <laughs> when you have a half dimension, right? You had the, the, the half floor of the building. That's right, where, the, where everything's uh, cut in half and you have to stoop. And what happens? People will, will use that. As a vessel to somehow <laughs> infiltrate your mind and hijack your body if you are placed in a half room or a, a half floor. Yeah, and that nobody wants that. It's gonna hard hard to retain tenants when you have that going on. Exactly. So again, you have Cantor's continuum hypothesis that says that there's there's no set whose cardinality is strictly between that of the integers and the real numbers. Can't prove it's true, can't prove it's false, can't measure it, can't hunt for a particle or measure anything about it. Yes, those real numbers are uncountable in this scenario of infinity. And then along uh, in about 1931, a guy named Goodell has a pair of proofs that are just spectacular to the, the math community because essentially he shows that you can never prove that the continuum hypothesis is false. And this feels like uh, you're, like you're moving the needle here on infinity just a bit, right? Like, oh, mm-hmm. we think we've grabbed onto something here. The problem is that in 1960 or thereabout, uh, Paul J. Cohen shows that you can never prove that the continuum hypothesis is true. 
And why does it, all of this matter? It's because it shows that there are unanswerable questions in mathematics, particularly dealing with infinity, which just is really a microcosm of the macrocosm problem of the unknowability of life in general. Yes. So if your brain is exploding right now, don't worry, because now we're going to take it back to physics. We're going to take it to, <laughs> to discussions of the physical world. As complicated right. and mind-blowing as that whole realm can get, at least we're dealing with observable physical reality, right? Oh, sure, you say that, and now I have the <laughs> physics sweats, which is an entirely different stench here. And that's understandable, yes, but, uh, because certainly physics uh, gets very complicated as well. But when, but here's the thing. When we see infinities in physics, mm-hmm. generally, it means that we have a problem. It means that something's really catastrophically um, wrong. Unless you get into theoretical physics, yes. as we will in a second. Yes. But, you know, basic physics, you're trying to you know, use somebody that's designing, you know, you know, a new building mm-hmm. and you look at the plans. If you see infinity on there, you know that <laughs> something is wrong. You do not want to try and stand in that building or or or, or certainly have an office in it. Um, it's never an actual measurement. It doesn't correspond to 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 reality as as we we deal with it in our lives. Mm-hmm. Right. Take, for instance, uh, quantum mechanics. OK, Um and, and, and such an important area of study, so many of our, our, our greatest technological achievements uh, in, in recent memory have arisen out of quantum mechanics. But uh, even here we see this crisis, the crisis being that even though we can predict the, the light heat power emission of a lamp, it's a finite amount of energy. But the various uh, wigglings of waves and atoms creates this answer, infinite energy. Which, uh, which we simply can't deal with, right? We know that, uh, that there's not infinite energy coming out of a, off of a lamp. So we, afterwards, we have to begin applying quantum physics to the forces of our universe, quantum field theory, uh, which is, of course, initially plagued by infinities as well. And it takes, ends up taking decades to slog through it all. You end up, uh, you know, having all of these infinities, all of these problems in the, in the theory that have to be eradicated, like, like enemies floating around in a video game. Which becomes incredibly important if you're looking at particle physics, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're trying to isolate the Higgs boson, you're taking these finite number of particles that we know and have named and seeing uh, how they behave, right? You do right. not need infinity in the mix right. if you're trying to figure out the composition of the universe, both from the time in which it became Mm-hmm. To now, I mean, take the Higgs for example. The search for the the, the Higgs boson. This was a such the, the so-called God particle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this, uh, this this of course has been one of the, the predominant science stories in in recent years because the whole idea was uh, that we had infinities in the theory and we had to remove them. And the thing that could remove it would be this uh, this Higgs particle, right? Right. So the whole quest for the Higgs particle comes out of this uh, this uh, this necessity, this need to eradicate the infinities from the theory. Because, again, infinities just don't work in this sense. Right. And the infinities here in the theory said, said, all right, we have an infinity. That means there's something finite in the world that we haven't discovered yet. And if we discover it, then we find our way around that answer. Now, if you sort of back up and then begin to, to take the large view of the universe and not just try to contain it in this, this one model, right, mm-hmm. you know that the universe is expanding. Right. How much? Infinitely? These are questions that come up. Yeah. And then you begin to say, well, how how far does space go anyway? And this is where theoretical physicists get into infinity and they really have some fun 
Um, and it's fascinating because here you see some examples of infinity played out in ways that you say, this is a possibility. Because infinity otherwise we just see is this sort of, you know, the line on the piece of paper in mathematics that goes on and on forever. But then you've got these ideas like multiverse existing. Now, when I think of the multiverse, I always think of uh, Jorge Luis Borges' uh, The Library of Babel, the uh, the library that, first of all, contains all books, all written books. But then beyond that also contains all possible books. And in in, in, in so being is uh, is ultimately kind of a model for a multiverse, uh, an existence that contains everything that is and everything that could be. Again, you go back to Cantor and you're talking about larger infinities, right? right? And essentially that's what we're talking about with multiverses. And I'm going to read this from Brian Greene's The Elegant Universe. Um, we could talk about multiverse in its very own episode, so we won't go too deep here. He says, imagine that what we call the universe is actually only one tiny part of a vastly larger cosmological expanse. One of the enormous number of island universes scattered across a grand cosmological archipelago. Although this might sound rather far-fetched, in the end it may well be, Andrei Lind has suggested a concrete mechanism that might lead to such a gargantuan universe. Lind has found that the brief but crucial burst of inflationary expanse may not have been a unique one-time event. Instead, he argues the conditions for inflationary expansion may happen repeatedly in isolated regions and peppered throughout the cosmos which then undergo their own inflationary ballooning in size, evolving into new separate universes. And in each of these universes, the process continues, with new universes sprouting from far-flung regions in the old, generating a never-ending web of ballooning cosmic expanses. And this is what he calls the multiverse. And that's pretty (laughs) mind-blowing. I mean, even if you you shrink back down to our single universe, um, there was a, an, an interesting point that was brought up by physicist Raphael Basso in that uh, World Science Festival uh, talk I was uh, mentioning earlier, which mm-hmm. I'll include a link to uh, in the landing page for this podcast episode. But he pointed out that that uh, when you start start looking at the way light travels across the universe, when you start looking at the span- expansion of the universe, you end up with a universe that's arbitrarily large. Light can never reach you from rapidly expanding regions. regions, And so any given observer is trapped within a finite sphere of observable universe within an expanding infinite. So you kind of get this, again, you get these ideas of here's this, here's this sphere of the finite within the infinite. You can think about the infinite, mm-hmm. but you're ultimately trapped within that sphere of the finite. Yeah, and this is a similar idea that Lee Smolin has in terms of the perception of the infinite. And Lee Smolin, by the way, is a cosmologist at Penn State. And his idea is that the conditions at the Big Bang and at the centers of black holes, each being characterized by a colossal density of crushed matter, has suggested that every black hole is the seed for a new universe that erupts into existence through a Big Bang-like explosion, but is forever hidden from our view by the black hole's event horizon. And of course, any of these discussions of the physical universe are, are even more twisted when you, when you of course draw on the fact that time and space are one. And if you play with space, you're playing with time. Mm-hmm. And if it were to be flat, then it could stretch out for an infinity, right? And mm-hmm. then you get all these different ideas of, well, maybe in this case that supports this idea of some sort of re- 
heating going on because you have a finite number of particles, but you have infinite space and time. And maybe that repeating pattern creates more universes, right? Hmm. And then you have Everett's many worlds interpretation that says that the universe branches off into distinct worlds to accommodate every single possible outcome. And so maybe we live in an infinite web of alternate timelines. I mean, it gets crazy and crazier as you go along. Wow. So, yes. I mean, I don't even have to. Uh, everyone else's mind is extrapolating the possibilities on that. I don't have to, to push you in that direction. And if you guys would like some articles to accompany this, uh, we have Everett's Many Worlds Interpretation on how stuff works. And we also have some a good amount of string theory and multiverse. Um, so we definitely have some stuff for you guys to dive into. Yes, on the Internet, which is, of course, a finite world, even though it? Yeah, it is. It is a finite world. But yet we we can't even grasp. We can't even put a number on it. We can't say how many pages there actually are on the Internet. We can't actually even comprehend it. It's a finite thing we've created and it is already, at least as far as human perception goes, bordering the infinite. Well, I suppose it is finite since we can see its growth. Yes. And we can put a number on it. But it feels infinite at times. It does. All right. So we're going to walk you guys out of this. Um, and we're going to take a little walk into something called the infinite monkey theorem. Oh, end, yes. To end one. this section. Yeah. And a good, this is an, uh, you know, a, a thought experiment that I often forget even really entails infinity. Maybe because I just get too caught up on the idea of monkeys banging on typewriters and right. how awful that writing room must be. And I've I've written in some awful rooms before. Mm-hmm. Uh, this states that a monkey hitting keys at random on a typewriter keyboard for an infinite amount of time will almost surely type a given text, like say the complete works of William Shakespeare. Okay. Okay. And so, in this context, almost surely is a mathematical term. All right. And it has a precise meaning. And that monkey is not an actual monkey, but a metaphor for an abstract device that produces a random sequence of letters for an infinity. And the theorem illustrates the perils of reasoning about infinity by imagining this vast but finite number and vice versa. So the probability is really tiny, right? Right. The probability exists that a monkey could eventually write a work as cohesive as, say, Shakespeare's Hamlet. Just by pure dumb accident of banging on the keys. Forever and ever and ever and ever. Which gives my fiction writing some hope. Oh, you're you're better than a monkey. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> and I'm I'm fine with that actually. Alright, so if you're still with us, then hopefully you have uh <laughs> Maybe you have a better idea of what uh, infinity is all about. Maybe you have a you know, more nuanced idea, a more expansive idea. Maybe this has uh, forced you to sort of rearrange your, your contemplation of the infinite and of the boundless in terms of, of our human experience, in terms of our cosmos, in terms of our ideas of God. So we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts about infinity, your personal takes on infinity, your favorite uses of infinity in fiction. All of that is fair game. Yeah. And uh, before you do that, make sure you stop at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's right. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, all the videos, all of the blog posts, uh, a finite amount of all of those, but certainly plenty of stuff to keep you occupied. Yeah. So share those thoughts with us, why don't you? And you can do that at blowthemind@howstuffworks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Yeah.